Amen. I love to worship. I love to worship with you. What a blessing. Now, next week, y'all don't have to sit in the back. I guess you're real Baptist, right? B-A-B-D-I-S in the back. <laughs> no, we are so thankful for the opportunity and and I'm thankful for all those that have to work so much for us to fit in there. And it's just working wonderful this morning. That was God's blood. We've been praying a lot this week because it is our desire to worship, to, to serve this precious flock so that you have this opportunity to grow. And so we're always looking for more leaders, more people to serve as the flock grows because we need more people. And... Uh, Continue to pray for wisdom for the elders as we look to the future and um, as God leads us to build another building. And don't worry, this one's not going away. There's all kinds of use for this one. And uh, pray for the seminary. Man, God is just really blessing there and the opportunity that um, the seminary has on so many levels. If you want to partake of the class this week, you can. Uh, over the next two weeks, Dr. Bookman's going to be here. He's not here yet. He'll come in this afternoon. He's going to be teaching uh, through the uh, Old Testament 1 and 2. And it's just a, a great time of learning. And if you've not heard him before, uh, you'll know why we love him so much around here because he just increases our love for the Word of God. He's the kind of guy you listen to and you think of three other things you want to find out from the Word of God. So we encourage you to be a part of that this week. Titus chapter 1 verses 8 and 9, and we're going to finish chapter 1 today because remember, we already looked at the last part, the culture that Titus was dealing with and who he needed to, uh, as, he, as he thought about choosing elders, Paul gives him this because Paul knew the kind of culture he was ministering to also, so we can finish this chapter this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at the Word. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that you'd give me your words and utterance to be able to minister to this precious flock this morning, your words. Challenge us, give us understanding and application so that we are not just hearers, but doers of the word also. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. I think it's important that we remember what Sam preached about this passage, that elders are to be examples so that all people can grow to be godly like this. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, that God gave gifted men, gifted teachers to the church, so the church can grow and they learn to do the work of the ministry so that as you're doing the work of the ministry, the flock, not just the professionals, you know, as they learn to do the work of the ministry, that we all grow up to maturity to the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. So it's imperative that leaders reflect these godly characteristics so they can be the examples of the flock so that all the flock can grow to be what God wants them to be. The message is entitled this morning, The Man of God. The Man of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes to another son in the faith who was a pastor, Pastor Timothy. And in verse 11 he says this, but flee from these things, you man of God. Basically the same things that he told Titus. To flee immorality, to flee greediness, self-will, a pugnacious spirit that you're going to fight to have your way and you're going to be argumentative. 
but rather to be an example of godliness. And he says, now you man of God, flee those things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I think it's important this morning that we not just look at the characteristics, but back off for a minute and get a picture of what God is talking about when he talks about a godly man or a godly pastor. In lectures to my students, Charles Spurgeon writes, if a pastor were called to an ordinary position and do common work, common grace might perhaps satisfy him, though even then it would be an indolent satisfaction. But being elect to extraordinary labors and called to a place of unusual peril, he should be anxious to possess that superior strength which alone is adequate to his station. His pulse of vital godliness must beat strongly and regularly. His eye of faith must be bright. His foot of resolution must be firm. His hand of activity must be quick. His whole inner man must be in the highest degree of sanity." People would come to Pastor Spurgeon and young men and feel, well, Pastor, they'd say, I really feel called to ministry because I've tried some other things and I, I fail at those. And he said, no, 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 God's not looking for leftovers. He's looking for the very best. Now, some of you and Sam Priest were maybe surprised that God has said very distinctly that only men are to lead in the church when it comes to the office of elder, the office of pastor. But I want you to know, Women are not called to that office, but most men are not called to pastor either. It's important that men have the character qualifications that God put in there, that they have the giftedness to be able to speak that God put in there, and they have the call of God. Charles Spurgeon said, it's evident there are many people in ministry that God has not called because of the fruitlessness of so many ministries. Because God didn't call them. God did not enable them. It's just a job. And I've seen pastors like that. It's just their job. They go and they check in. And we had a fellow, he's with the Lord now, but he came out here. He had been in ministry, been in the mission field, and he was just kind of worn out. And he came and he became a part of our church for a year. And at the end of the year, he said, Paul, you know what this church has taught me? So what's that? He said, ministry's not a, it's not a job. It's a life. Oh, man, that's right. Somehow he'd been laboring and is just wearing him and his family out. It's a life that God calls a pastor to. Now, there are different kinds of pastors. We think of pastor. You might think of a pastor. You remember the little series, Little House on the Prairie? It's a good series. The pastor was kind of a soft guy. You know, he was kind of a wimpy guy, kind of a milk toast guy. And he was just there to affirm the people and keep everybody smiling, keep patting them, keep them going, and just kind of be the nice guy to affirm everyone. That's not God's pastor. Some pastors, I came out here and I figured out that uh, in Wyoming, I don't know if this is everywhere, but in Wyoming, people like to have a pocket pastor. You know, a pocket pastor, it's a convenient pastor. He's battery operated. He has an off switch. You can put him away. It doesn't cost much. And when you're trying to listen, just put him away, and he's got to be quiet. He's got to look, because he, he belongs to you. You put him in your pocket. It's convenient. I don't fit in a pocket. God's pastor does not just fit there 
for some individual that maybe they have more money and more influence community just to be the pastor to that person. No, no, no. He belongs to God. Then there's the windsock pastor. You know what that is? You, know, you see him at the, the airport. They used to. They'd have the windsock out there. And the windsock pastor, he's just, he's just looking for whatever the wind blows, whatever's popular. My brother uh, Tim said in, he lives in Ames, Iowa, and one time as he was driving to church, every single church he went by was going through 40 days of purpose. Coincidence? I don't think so. It was really popular. It was trendy. So all the churches had to stop from the Word of God and go through Rick Warren's book, 40 Days of Purpose. Now, you may have found some benefit there. I'm not saying that, but I think that pastors can go a little deeper than that. That everybody, you know, just blowing, what, what's popular? We've got to find out what the, what the, what's happening out there in the world and adjust our schemes. I told you a couple weeks ago that we were down visiting a really neat church down in Mississippi, and they were very concerned, how do we minister to the millennials? We've got to change our style. No, no, no. People are just as lost today as they were 100 years ago, as they were 50 years ago. And the same thing is the power of God into salvation. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so every pastor has to be that armored shepherd that has the helmet of salvation. He has the breastplate of righteousness. His feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel. In his hand, he has the sword of the spirit and he has the shield of faith that he can stand and lead with confidence and by example to be the pastor that God has called him to be. I want to read this to you. This is from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And before Pilgrim was being drawn by the spirit, he was looking for salvation. He still had the burden of sin on his back, but he'd met with evangelist, and evangelist had placed him on the narrow road, and he said, Do you want, I want you to go this way. And you know, he had some trouble, but he'd get back on the path, and finally he came to a house, and he was directed there by, I think it was Help. Mr. Help came along, and uh, he said, I want you to go to interpreter's house. You need to go there first, so you know what to look out for and what to be aware of. And he went to interpreter's house, and he knocked on the door, and interpreter said, come in. I will show you that which will be profitable to you. So he commanded his man to light the candle and bid Christian to follow him. And he led him into a private room and bid his man open a door. And when he had done so, Christian saw the picture of a very grave person hanging upon the wall. He had eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand, the law of truth written upon his lips, and the world behind his back. He stood as if he pleaded with men, and a crown of gold hung over his head. And Christian said, what does this mean? Have you ever gone to a painting and thought, what was the author thinking here? What does this mean? And so they asked what he asked the interpreter. An interpreter said, the man who is pictured there is one of a thousand. He can beget, ch beget children, he can travail in birth with children, and then nurse them himself when they are born. And you see him with his eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand, and the law of truth upon his lips to show you that his work is to know and unfold dark things to sinners. Even as you also see him standing as if he pleaded with men, and you see the world cast behind him and a crown over his head to show that because he despises the things that are present, for the love he has for his master's servant, he is sure to have glory for his reward in the next world. Now, I have shown you this picture because 
First, this man pictured here is the only man whom the Lord, the place where you're going, has authorized to be your guide. So he said, I want you to recognize this kind of man so that you'll look for the right kind of fella to point you in the right direction. He's the only kind where you're going has been authorized to be your guide in all the difficult places you may encounter on the way. Wherefore, heed what I have shown you and bear in mind what you have seen, lest on your journey you meet with someone who pretend to lead you right, but whose way only leads to death. And so Paul tells Timothy, you need to find those men who God has called, and you can tell not only by their character, you can tell by their giftedness, and you can tell by the passion of their heart that God has set them aside to be those people that point people to Christ. They point them to the cross, and it's always first in their mind to see people come to Christ and see them grow, that they turn around also to be those that share Christ with others. So first of all, the man of God, Titus 1, 8. Instead of being greedy, that was the last word in the verse before, and worried about himself, he's hospitable. That word in the Greek just means he loves strangers. He's a person that loves to welcome people. He loves to look for people to share the gospel with. Now in Paul's day, if there were believers that were traveling they would come to a town, they couldn't go to a hotel, there was no Motel 6s, and they had inns in those days, but those inns were notorious for all kinds of wickedness. So they might come and try to find some Christians so they could stay with them. Now, that's the way I grew up. We always had missionaries staying with us. One time, we had this little three-bedroom house, my dad's was the parsonage in Wheatland, and uh, we had a group of basketball players from a Bible college that got stranded because of snow. And so we had the basketball team there, and the coach was there, some friends of my dad. He was a basketball player. And then, then we had a young married couple that just wanted to drop in on their honeymoon. So we had four kids, a basketball team, their coach, and a honeymoon couple on their first night. And so mom and dad gave them their room, and we were packed to the gills. And as a kid growing up, that was just fun. I just loved it. So poor Christy, when she got married, I didn't, I didn't tell her that in the prenup. We don't have one of those. That this is the way a pastor's house is supposed to be. That we just, and I grew up, Lynn's, dad, Lynn's mom, always having people over, always taking care of people, always inviting people over. Now, you got to make sure, guys, if you're going to be a pastor, you always... I, I wasn't good about warning Christy. I decided one morning, Lord laid in my heart, I'm going to invite every single guy over to my house. And I did. And then I told her. She said, well, it'd be nice to know. Noted. Noted. Now, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. I can be trained by one woman, Christy. And... That idea that we're always trying to welcome people in. In, the, in those years of 87 and 88, when we were first starting ministry, we saw all those young people come to know Christ. Most of them, overwhelmingly, didn't come from Christian homes. And so they would come to our house after the evening service and be there till 2 in the morning sometimes. And Christy gets so tired because she knew we were going to get up the next morning and get the boys off to school. So she'd go crawl in bed and college girls would just follow her in there and keep on talking, you know. Why? Because they wanted to see... 
What does it mean to have a godly life? How does, it, how, how does Paul treat you? How are you supposed to treat a Christian husband? They didn't know. And the pastor's got to be the one that welcomes people in. He can't live this little isolated life where he gets up in the pulpit and then poof, he disappears. Now, I've been to large churches and I understand that, you know, it's going to be a pressure. You've got 5,000, 10,000 people there that you can't talk to all of them. And so some pastors, they're like magically raptured. They have somebody else in in prayer and, and then poof, they're gone. You're like, whoa, what happened? That was a message from heaven, you know. But you know, bless my heart when I went to visit uh, John Piper's church in Minneapolis. And he had three services and a lot of people there. But I said, I wonder what John Piper does because I learned a long time ago, if I go to the back of the church to greet everybody, I love to greet everybody, but the people, the new people I want to greet, they're going to skate out the back and I'm not going to get them. And somebody that I see all the time is going to stop because now they got me my attention. And so I just learned years ago, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to stay here at the front. And sometimes you come for two or three years and you come and introduce yourself, and I'm so thankful for that. But people come and they need it. And so I watch. What does John Piper do? You know, he's a master pastor. What does he do? You know, John got through at this amazing church. He got done preaching and he just went down to the front and he waited. And maybe 10 people of his people lined up and took their turn. And then they got ready for the next service. I was, oh, good Lord, I've done something right, you know. Pastor has to be available. But I'm so thankful that we have so many pastors because I can't do all this. And so God has given us so many to be able to help shepherd this amazing flock that God has given. You are so precious to us. But it starts with, he told Timothy, Timothy, it may not have been because of his timidness. Maybe Timothy wasn't natural evangelist. Maybe that wasn't one of his strengths. But he said, Timothy, you've got to do the work of an evangelist. You've got to have that open spirit to be able to talk to people. Don't hide. Because how is your church going to have that spirit of welcoming people and going after people if you don't? So, Timothy, you may not be a natural evangelist. That may not be the strength of your ministry, but you've got to do that. You have to be that example. It has to do with that idea of loving strangers. Paul said, I don't want to just build on others' foundations. I want to go where the gospel's never been before. He, he demonstrated that all the time. A pastor has to have that. He uses his things for the gospel to welcome people. Jesus said in Luke 14, 12, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't just invite your friends or your brothers, your relatives, rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may invite you in return and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, the opportunity. And you may think, how many pastors don't labor in a church that takes such good care of them like you take care of me and our pastors here? I think, well, we only have that much. And Doug Wookie, our pastor, college pastor, is such an example. There's so many times, him and Tuesday, they didn't have anything, and they'd say, well, come to our house for dinner. And I think Tuesday would say, I wonder what we're gonna have. And God would just drop groceries from nowhere on their front step. Somebody just got led of the Lord to drop off a ham or drop off, and so they'd eat it. Now you'd think that a pastor like Doug would say, oh, well, I just better keep this because I don't know what I'm going to have tomorrow. No, no, God blesses the pastor with faith to welcome people because the pastor has learned you cannot give the Lord. So you can just be open with your things. 
But not only does he love people, the pastor loves good things. He loves good things. What is good things? Well, another translation also includes good men. It's so important that pastors can be seen surrounding themselves with godly men. You dads, your children, your sons especially, are going to choose friends like you have. doesn't mean all your friends have to be believers, but people that are close to you, they're people of character. I was blessed as, as I was watching my boys grow up in Laramie. All of their friends weren't Christians, but all their friends were young men of character. And I would tell them, you know, because every once in a while there's an Eddie Haskell that sneaks in there with your friend. You know what Eddie Haskell is, right? That's that guy that, hello, Mrs. Martin. Hi, Mr. Martin. But they're a snake in the grass, you know? And the first times they get, they're going to try to whisper in, in, uh, in their friend's ear, hey, you don't have to listen to your parents. Let's just go do this. And I would tell the boys, listen, if you can be an influence and you can be the leader in the situation, that's fine. But as soon as I say they're having more influence than you are, you're 86 on that friend. You're nixing him. He's no your friend. So, well, boy, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? That's exactly right. I wanted my boys to grow up to understand what godliness. The Bible says that don't forget your friends or your father's friends. I watched. I was blessed to have a godly dad who had really good friends. Now, he didn't have a lot of friends in the ministry. My dad didn't have the same personality. I have a personality more like my grandpa Berglund. He never met a stranger. My dad's kind of a quieter guy. But he had friends that were on the mission field and friends he'd gone to, to seminary with and Bible college. And, and we'd have them in our home and I'd hear them laugh. I'd see a side of my dad that I didn't see. He'd be with his brothers and I'd, they'd be telling jokes and laughing. And I'd watch that. And God did something in my heart say, I want to have friends like that. I'm going to look for friends like that. He appreciates good friends, but not just good people. Because it's so important that you surround yourself with good fellowship. You have to know people in the world. You want to minister to people in the world. But guys, we need one another because Satan wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy you as an individual. So we need to arm ourselves with solid, godly men. And we read good things. It's not just the the men we have, but we read good books. The pastor can give, hey, have you read this? Here's a good book. Somebody comes to you and say, well, I'm really struggling. Do you have something I could read on this? Well, first of all, I take them to Scripture. You should memorize this. But, but there's also some good books that are written there. Good music, good causes, many other good things. Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are good report, if there be any praise, if there be any virtue, think on these things. Fill your mind up with the good things. My friend Ben Sanchez works all day on wood. He's a craftsman. And he just was, Lord convicted him, you need to start memorizing scripture. He didn't know he had that gift. And it's a gift. And about a month ago, we were able to sit down around the fire at Sam's house. And he quoted to us the book of Romans. It was such a blessing to me. Because as he quoted, it wasn't like an Omatron, some computer-driven thing. It was like I was listening to the Apostle Paul write it. He's filling his mind with the Word of God. And guess what? That has an effect on your life. 
And the pastor has to be that person that, that saturates his life with the good things that God has given him so he can be in that, that encouragement to those that are following. Not only does he love good things or good people, but he's sensible. Now, the Greek word is sophron, the word we get sophomore from. Now, the word sophomore has kind of degenerated in our culture to become, well, if you say somebody is sophomoric, that means they're kind of immature and silly and kind of stupid. So we think of sophomores. Now, what the, they meant by calling them sophomores, they're no longer freshmen, and so they've got some wisdom, right? Well, this word is sensible. It just means prudent. The pastor needs to demonstrate in his life the ability to make wise decisions, whether it's finances or his entertainment or what he does with his family. He's making wise choices. Now, I wish I had the wisdom when I started at 29 that I had at 60. So if you go someplace and you have a young pastor and you say, well, you're not like Paul Martin. Well, Paul Martin has a few more scars than he has, you know? And maybe he's only 30, but God has given the word. And so you, you let God work in his life. You give him that space and you pray for that young pastor because God continues to lead I'm so thankful, and I tell people all the time, methetes, I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Methetes means learner. When we stop learning, then we get deadness. We become inflexible. And I don't care. I, I love to go when, when Clayton has times and the young men are, are preaching or we come and we hear these young men preaching at the 5 o'clock. I love that. Because it's the Holy Spirit working in them, and I can learn something. But that wisdom comes because God is leading us. He gives us those tests and those trials. So we become that man of God that demonstrates the ability to make wise choices. Next, the man of God is just, upright. He should be a man of integrity who sticks by his word and who practices what he preaches. His conduct is righteous. And like we see all the time, he swears to his own hurt. He makes a deal, even though he may lose money, he gave his word. He's going to keep his word. Because what he's demonstrating, he's trusting God that if he does the right thing, God could have made that business deal go either way. But he really felt, I felt I was supposed to do this. It looks like I'm going to lose, but I gave my word. I'm going to, I'm going to complete the deal. I'm going to trust God for the safekeeping of my soul. Next, in chapter in verse 8, it says he's devout, devout. comes from the Greek word hosios, means holy, pious, devout. Now, when we think of somebody that's pious, we, we sometimes get the wrong idea because we think of that in connotation with Pharisees who pretend they wear a, like a hypocrite. They wear a mask of religiosity. But pious just means devout, that the word of God and our worship of God is a very serious, regular part of our life. It is our life. And the man of God has got to demonstrate all the time. He's not one way in the pulpit and another way at home. That's why so many pastor's kids get discouraged because they know dad's just a hypocrite. He's playing with a mask or they just see that as dad's job and they don't buy it. So sad. Devout. And then lastly, self-controlled. 
The idea of being meek, power under control. It applies to a man's appetites and actions. A pastor must discipline his time so he gets his work done. He must discipline his desires and his appetites. And several commentators of reading talked about people want to be so good to the pastor, they want to cook him pies and, and cookies and all. Listen, I don't need that stuff. We, we had donuts yesterday. We were watching the, the Cowboys game. There's some left over. I brought them home, and so Christian and I had one this morning. Now, if I had donuts any more than like every six months, I love donuts. But I just can't have donuts. I'd be more shaped like a donut than I am now, like a long john filled, you know. So I just have to say no. And I have to regularize, re- regularly exercise. I have to walk, and, and then it gets cold and starts blowing. It's not the cold that bothers me. It's that 60-mile-an-hour wind, you know, trying to walk and get blown in front of a truck. I, I kind of hesitate there. So I've got to do something else in the winter. Because... The, the man of God has to find that place to keep himself physically fit so he can be the example of discipline to be able to do the work he needs to do. I remember when I, the first couple weeks, first month I was preaching, I preach not as many as I'm as preaching now, but I, I teach Sunday school, then I preach the morning service, and then I preach an evening service. And by the time the evening service was done, my talker didn't work anymore. It was like done for the day. And so I had to kind of get in shape. Discipline. Discipline of time so he gets the study done, so he can minister the word of God. But also discipline his actions. To listen to the Lord. And I, I think one of the great examples, the greatest examples, is the Lord Jesus. You know, Jesus, when he was attacked, never defended himself. Never defended himself. So, oh, what do you mean there? I mean, I got to defend myself. No. First Peter chapter 4, verse 19 says, Those that suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So you can just say, Lord, take care of them. Moses was a guy like that. You know, Moses started out, he was training all the, the engineering and science of the Egyptians. He was trained in the art of war. It seems like he had mighty battles as a warrior, as a general in the Pharaoh's army. And so he began to understand that God had called him to set his people three, and he thought, well, I've got this intelligence and this power. I'll lead the rebellion myself. God said, no, what you need is 40 years in the wilderness. So he moved him out. Later, God uses him to deliver the children of Israel with the mighty acts of God. And they get out there, and in, in Exodus chapter, or excuse me, Numbers chapter 12, his own brother and sister, Marian, Miriam and Aaron, begin to kind of, well, they weren't kind of, they were actually just cutting him up and uh, kind of criticizing him because of his Ethiopian wife. And they were gossiping and running him down. And the Lord cared about his servant. Moses, he just let the Lord deal with it. The Lord said, all right, you three in the tent of meeting right now. I want to talk to all three. Can you imagine God calling you because of gossip? So he calls him in there and he says, what do you think you're doing? Most prophets, God says, I speak in dark sayings. And they just got to go out and they don't know what it means. But they just have to say what I said. And they're trying to figure it out. But I talk to, to Moses face to face like a man talks to my friend. And you think you can take God's servant and just talk about him? 
When God sent him out, Miriam turned white with leprosy and Aaron went right to praying, oh Lord, we have sinned. And God said, well, she can stay outside the camp and then I'll cleanse her. But you listen to me, you leave Moses alone. And see, a pastor has to be rooted and grounded in the word of God that God is the one taking care of him. He can develop some hide. The word there after uh, loving good things was not sensitive. It was sensible. You find a sensitive little pastor, then he shouldn't be a pastor because a, a pastor's got to be tough enough to know that sometimes he's going to get hooked because some of our sheep have horns and some of them have teeth and they're going to bite and they're going to backbite. And so we have to understand this is war we're called to. We can't wilt all the time, develop some hide. At the same time, you guard your heart so it stays tender to the Lord. It doesn't get bitter like Moses. He had the power. He could have really straightened the whole thing out, but he let the Lord take care of it for him. He trusted God. Well, how can a man become like that? The next verse. Because the man of God holds fast the word of, the word of God. It's not just something cute he tries to figure out to come up with a story to talk about on Sunday. It is his life. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God that proceeds from God's mouth. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, it's his life. Sam preached last week. It's commanded. Christians don't get drunk. It's a command. My buddy said, man, that spoke to me, Paul. What Sam said spoke to me. You see, the pastor looks at all of God's word that way. We don't understand it all. We may not understand it all when we get to heaven, but what we understand, it's not suggestions. It's Christ's commands, and he is our general. He is the captain of our salvation, and we put ourselves under that, that we might be example of the word so that, why? We have a platform of believability. If you don't see in the preacher's life, he's telling like some dads tell their kids, don't do what I do, do what I say, he's not believable. He's a laughing stock. But he said, the pastor's got to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. He's got to be rooted and grounded. It's, it's, it's his marching orders. It's the strength for his life in the word of God so that he's able to exhort in sound doctrine. It's believable because they see it lived out. What is the exhortation? That is kind of the gift of coaching. It's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes alongside. He gives us understanding of the word, and he, he leads us so we know how. Well, the pastor has that same opportunity. It's the counselor. Now, the prophet, he's just always there to tell you what's right and wrong, and so he can beat you up sometimes, and that's wrong. I told you it's wrong. It's wrong. I got it. But the exhorter comes along and says, okay, that was wrong, but here's how the Bible says we can correct the future so we don't fall into that problem again. The exhorter. In sound doctrine, sound doctrine is that which brings life and health to those that believe the word of God. Teach them how to abide in Christ so that they bring forth fruit that remains. Exhort in sound doctrine and refute those that contradict. Now, pastors, men of God, as people, we're not called to study error. But if you saturate your life with the truth of the word of God, when error raises its head, you'll know exactly, no, that's not it. Like, like John Bunyan said, when the wrong kind of guy comes along, something's just not right. Now, Christian got, 
kind of pulled aside a couple times because somebody sounded pretty good, but he wasn't matching up to God's word. That's how we know. You say, well, how do you know? Right here, the best of all books. This is the standard. But if we know the truth, we're going to be able to correct those that teach the wrong things. And if we can't correct them, at least we can say, you watch out for this guy. You say, you know, pastor, sometimes you're kind of mean like Sam, and you say some things, you know, about some pastors out there that are, have big ministries, and, oh, it doesn't sound too nice. Well, because they're, they're selling poison. I had a friend of mine that uh, I was on break back to uh, Illinois, and he was teaching a Sunday school class, and he held up a glass of water, and he says, now, see this glass of water? It's cold. It's clear. You can see through it. Be so refreshing, wouldn't it? Now, what if I told you I pulled it out of the toilet? My, old, my, my, my sister, Ruth, had that experience one time. She was sick at home, and our baby sister, Jenny, was whole, home. And, and she said to Jenny, Jenny, could you get me a cup of water? And my little sister, at that time, she's like 40-something now, but she said, sure, Ruth. And so she ran over, and she comes back with a really cold glass of water. And Ruth just refreshed herself. My mom walked in, and he says, where do you think that came from, Ruth? Well, I don't know. She can't reach the faucet. Now listen, for the most part, toilet water's clean, isn't it? It comes from the same tap. Hey, listen, what do we want to be feeding our people? The sincere milk of the word without error as much as we can know exactly what God says and give them that. When I think about God's call in a person's life, and I look back at my own life, and there was no voice from heaven. But this week as I was walking, I like to walk. I don't put iPhones in or anything. I just walk, and I think of the scripture and try to memorize it. And I just pray. I pray for you, whoever God lays in my heart. And God gave me this amazing thought. Part of my call to the ministry was when I was eight years old. I'd grown up in church all of my life, all eight years, big history. And uh, we moved to Wheatland. Now, I'd heard preaching, I heard the gospel, I'd made a decision for, for Jesus in my own life. But when Pastor Howe, he wasn't Pastor Howe, then when Lynn Howe gave his life to the Lord, God did something in my life that I never got over. The joy of of watching the gospel change somebody's whole trajectory. Just change it. And I never got over that. All the way through junior high and high school, and then later when Lynn was my, my youth pastor, our, our folks was always, let's get some of our friends to come to youth activity, because maybe they won't come to church, but they'll come to youth activity, and we know that Lynn is going to give them the word. He's going to share the gospel with them. You see, a pastor is not just there to be an expert in Greek and Hebrew and give you these little wonderful little sayings. He's there to be the example, to have a heart that's full of reaching people and seeing people grow to maturity. And we now are in the blessing of seeing the next generation already in this church. Some of those kids that got saved in 88 87, 88, their kids are coming to the university and they're coming from solid Christian homes. What a joy. I never got over that. Seeing God change a life by the gospel, not me. It wasn't about my dad. It was about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite passages for being a pastor 
the Lord Jesus quoted, and it was about himself, but it's what he's called pastors to. It's found in Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you continue to call men, set them aside and equip them. And Lord, give them a church like this that surrounds young men that you're calling to ministry and nurtures them and protects them and challenges them and gives them the example and prays for them and then sends them out that in all parts of the world there might be a planting of the Lord, oaks of righteousness for your glory. Or continue to do that. Or continue to grow this church to reach others with the gospel right in our own place. That we might be the light that shines for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.